0: Hey everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I've got Terry Fakes with me today. You know, we say a lot at So We Speak that our goal is to keep you informed without being conformed. And today we want to take that topic head on. A couple of weeks ago, we did a overview of an article by Andrew Sullivan. And uh, this week we thought we'd do the same thing, but on a different topic. And it's an article that appeared in First Things in the March issue by a college professor named Les Sillars. I think he also writes for World Magazine. And the article is called The Future of News. And what I like about the article, first of all, is it summarizes and presents what I think are are some of the main heavyweight issues on the topic of journalism. Uh, But the other thing I like about it is I'm I'm not 100% sure I agree with him in his analysis of journalism now or in the future. So what we want to do is walk through this article and use it almost as a springboard to talk about journalism because I think that's one of the most important topics in our culture right now. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna turn it over to Terry Fakes. Give us a little overview of this article What are the points that he's making, and then maybe let's talk about the big points that we need to make about journalism, especially as Christians.
1: Yes, I agree. Journalism is one of the more dividing issues of our day, and that wasn't always the case. For example, Siller starts out the article by saying, for about a century, this is a quote, American journalism had a paradigm that positioned the industry as essential to liberal democracy, journalistic objectivity. In other words, that an objective press was essential to a liberal democracy. He goes into the second paragraph and he says that paradigm is now a smoking ruin, which I think is pretty obvious to all of us. He has an alarming statistic. Listen to this. The percentage of Americans who say they trust the news media has plummeted 40 points in 40 years. Now, I know we're all aware of the you know fake news and the, uh, the war, basically, between President Trump and the media. But really, this has been going on for several decades. Mm-hmm. He contrasts it this way. He says that journalism was a profoundly noble calling. And what was it there for? To see the world clearly and help others to see it clearly, too. But over time his point is this. Publishers learned to attract large audiences and then sell their readers attention to advertisers. So you can see the tension between these two ideas. One, the see the world clearly, help others to see it clearly, and that this function was a an essential function to a liberal democracy, but The pursuit of ad revenue led publishers to draw as large an audience as they could, sometimes by whatever means they could, and sell those readers' attention to their advertisers. And so one of the things Sillers does, I think one of the main points he makes is that inherent tension between those two paradigms is what is driving the difficulties in journalism today. So let me turn it back to you, Cole. What, what do you think about that essential tension in his main point? I think he, I think the important thing to
0: follow in his argument is the concept of journalism is changing. Now, I think he makes an important caveat at the beginning of this. He's, he's talking about a century within American history. Mm-hmm. Not journalism in abstraction for all of history, because one of the points I would make is, like a lot of things in American politics, the way we talk about journalism and media is overly nostalgic. So, for example, we, we talk in, in whether it's the Republican or the Democratic Party, we talk about a glory days or a golden age. Of these parties, where everything was great, whether that's the 1950s, whether that's the civil rights movement, whether that's the New Deal, we talk about like everything was great in those days. But that's a pretty reductive view of history. Things really weren't all that great in those time periods, even if great things did come from them and great things existed. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 overly simplistic to say that during the Reagan years everything went well in the Republican Party and everybody had the same values and everybody was on the same page. That that just didn't actually exist. The same is true in journalism. To assert that journalism for all of history has been objective and reporters only carried about, cared about the truth and the companies weren't interested in ad revenue or money at all is, is overly simplistic. In fact, there's some great examples of Uh, really terrible propaganda and journalism going back to thousands of years ago. You can even see some of this in the Bible, how people have used media in whatever form it was at the time to
1: accomplish less than noble and less than truthful goals. That's a good point. I I still remember before we get back to modern times, going all the way back to uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. You and I were in the British Museum in London together looking at, of course, the British Museum has all of the great stuff from the Middle East. We were looking at the panels he had carved on the walls of his palace, and it was ancient media, if you will, and he had so spun his exploits for the purpose of mm-hmm. intimidating uh the ambassadors, if you will, ambassadors from other countries would come and Sennacherib would say, I think you should become my vassals. I think you should pay me taxes. By the way, have I shown you what I've done to people before? And you're right. It goes back right. thousands of years that uh, media has been put to partisan uses. Right. But with that said, that, that brings into the discussion one of the
0: foundational principles that Sillars is operating on, and that is in America you did have a period of time where the nature of journalism did change, even if it was just the ideal of journalism changed. And part of that is based on the American experience in total, which would be information is essential to have a free people who are self-governing. So there's a quote, I think, from Thomas Jefferson that that basically said, to be free and ignorant is something that never has been and never will be. So if you want to have a free people, you need to have an informed people. So they need to be informed about what they're voting on. They need to be informed about what their goals are as a group of people, what this country exists to do. And so as the, the American experiment, constitutional republic, all of that, Goes along, you get this new ideal for journalism, which is informative journalism. So, objective, informative are the words that we would use to describe it. Mm-hmm. To where the goal really was, at least, even if it wasn't in- instantiated, at least ideally, was to see the world clearly, to see the world objectively, to provide information to people so that then they can build opinions and decision making processes based on the information they have. And that's one of the things I want to preserve out of this discussion is it's still important for us to be informed. Mm -hmm. Now, later, I know we're going to talk about whether or not objective journalism is even possible. And the extension of that is whether or not objective reading of journalism is even possible. But I do want to just put a stake in the ground and say information however we construe its relationship with journalism is extremely important for a free people and even more than that it's extremely important for us as as Christians because we have an obligation that supersedes our allegiance to America to the truth so truth is going to be something that guides our conversation here but But to set that up, maybe we should talk about the nature of objectivity and subjectivity
1: in journalism. What do you think? Well, I agree. Let me ask you a question. I know this is, uh, epistemology is an area of real interest to you. But the idea, we as Christians believe in truth, with a capital T, God's truth, of course. But that there are things uh, that go on in our world and the truth should be known. Our culture, the postmodern roots of our culture, really want to cast some doubts about whether or not such a thing as truth exists. So if Mm -hmm. truth with a capital T doesn't exist then obviously everything is subjective. For example you can read history through the lens of identity politics. It's the story of uh, white people or European people or depending on whatever your filter is oppressing other people. And so, for example, the same piece of news might be used as evidence of oppression or perpetuating a patriarchal stereotype, whereas on the other hand, you might say, no, that's actually just a set of facts. This is what happened. And you don't necessarily need to read it into your paradigm. So maybe I'm going back too far, but without a a shared paradigm of what is truthful, it's hard to understand how the idea of objectivity can exist at all. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Yeah,
0: I want to get technical here for a minute just so we can establish a few points for discussion. The point that you're making, I think, is the key to understanding what we're trying to do in journalism. So when we talk about history, for example, a lot of times we think of history as what happened. What are the facts of what happened? Uh-huh. If we had somebody sitting next to the event, recording everything as it went, what would they say? Now, of course, we know, and if you've ever tried to read history and that's what you're reading, that's extremely boring. And those books do not sell. But that's basically a timeline is what that is. So to an extent, journalism in and of itself is doing something more than just recording what happened. And this is where we arrive at uh, uh, something I think that's fundamental to understanding modern media and journalism. So if you have a set of facts, so you, you have an event that happened and you have all these facts about what took place, there's two ways of construing that data. First of all, you can... Make a jump from fact to value, or from what happened to what it means, and so we take the set of data that we have and we provide a narrative and say these things happened and this is what it means. Right. That's what I would typically characterize as, as an opinion, an op-ed, an opinion column, an editor- editorial column, and those have actually become the most popular pieces of air, quote, journalism on most major media companies' websites. Right. So people want to read opinion columns more than they do whatever the Associated Press put out about the event itself. So that said, what you can do there is you can actually have multiple narratives that are tracing over the same set of facts. Correct. The second thing is you can decide which facts you present and which ones don't. And that in and of itself influences the narrative. And this is the one I think is probably the most devious. It doesn't concern me that we're running different narratives from the same set of facts. I think that's just an essential piece of what it means to tell stories, what it means to do history, what it means to do the news. And so you have these different narratives, but if they're operating from the same Character fundamentals, which we'll talk in a minute uh, about how you assess data, then what we can do is we can compare the narratives and say, well, I think this one actually handles it better, or this one, or I think this one is more comprehensive, and and we're able to do that. And I think that actually is the key to a free press and a free society. But again, we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. What I think is devious is when you know of a set of information, so you have nine data points. But you choose to report on six of them in order to make a point that you really want to make. And I think it's worth us us discussing for a minute how conscious we think that is in the media, because the, the argument is you have too much information to report, so you have to choose what to report and what not to report. Where I get uncomfortable is how much of it is conscious omission and how much of it is the necessity of having too much to actually report on? That's, that's the question to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. For example, Sillers in his article talks about a, a code of ethics that the American Society of Newspaper Editors put out in 1922 to try to address this kind of thing. And it, he says this, Publishers wanted to project an image of, quote, benevolent neutrality. I think you're Mm -hmm. questioning whether or not that can exist, but you make a very good point of when you take the nine data points, for example, and you use six of those and you construct a narrative that is very convincing on its face, but the other three points would provide a different point of view and cause the reader or listener to think about it. It's hard to see that as anything except intentional. Now, the question to me is is this the natural bias that human beings bring to situations, or is it a, quote, conspiracy? Is it an editorial decision? Is, for example, Donald Trump is basically saying that the Washington Post and the New York Times are engaged in a long term intentional effort to undermine his presidency. That would be a conspiracy. That would say everything we do is going to be slanted one way or another. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the discussion that we're having. I'll give you an example. I'm going to call out NPR a little bit, and I apologize ahead of time if uh, some of our listeners are NPR fans. I like National Public Radio for certain things, but over time what I realized was that the stories that they selected seemed to be presenting a universal uh, leftist bias to me. Now, perhaps I'm wrong about that, but it wasn't so much that they were overtly biased, but the very stories they chose to tell seemed to me to fit a narrative that was not my narrative. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're talking about is, you know, the question is, how intentional is that? Yeah, that's,
0: I think that's one of the key questions and if we were to step back for a minute and say, because we're talking about journalists right now as a gateway to journalism, and if we were to say, let's, let's try to establish a code of conduct for journalists. If we were to say, here are some here are some ethical guidelines for journalism, what would we want to include in that code of ethics? And I think the first thing we would say is, Story selection is one of the most important ways to preserve a free press. So the fact that we have multiple news outlets is an important component of that. Multiple news outlets are by nature going to write about different things. So I think that's important. Mm -hmm. I think having multiple journalists of multiple viewpoints in your company is also important because they're going to choose different things. Uh, But then I think from an editorial standpoint... Um, whether it's a hiring thing, whether it's a feedback method, whether it's just what stories you cultivate, um, we need to get serious about thinking along the lines of what stories sell and what don't and why that's the key motivator for news and mainstream media. So, for example, if you watch the local news, a lot of people complain that the local news is primarily about bad things. Uh Uh-huh and not good things well that's pretty simple to explain if you want to do a cliffhanger and you want to get people to stay over the break of a commercial you need to entice them and usually bad things or foreboding things are more enticing than good things or positive things so what you do is over time you gradually over and over and over again realize that if you do the lead-in about the murder that occurred you know, in some a certain part of the city, more people are going to stay tuned than if you say that uh, some kids went and sang at a nursing home over the weekend. Right. So, by nature, the the editorial decisions are based on metrics that we probably wouldn't say are the best metrics. But but as individuals go, you have to write the stories that you want to cover. But are there enough journalists of enough different interests to create a wide enough selection for your news outlet to accurately portray what's going on? That would be one of the issues I want to bring up. What would
1: you put in your code of ethics for journalists? Yeah, That's a great point because, again, we're back to the basic tension, and that is ad revenue, which means how many eyeballs are, lis- are watching or how many ears are listening to what you're talking about. And what does it take to get those eyeballs uh, on there? And some of the point is sensational things sell, but an informed electorate needs to know what's actually going on. And so for my code Mm -hmm. of ethics, it would probably be uh, presenting all the major points of view but you also are gonna have to market that in such a way that you can engage people's attention and the lazy way to do this is to carve out your own little echo chamber which is i think what we see now you can almost take a news uh, media you can take cnn msnbc fox news and say this is who they're talking to they're talking to people who want to hear what they have to say it's hard to find someone who says look here's the narrative but The other side has this different narrative. Now, how do we check it for accuracy and how do we bridge this divide? So I would say one of the key things in a code of ethics is that you present fairly a different point of view than your own. What do you think?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that gets tricky because there are some interpretations of facts that we would we would say are not legitimate interpretations. So there is editorial decision that needs to take place. I think the question would be is editorial privilege being abused mm-hmm. in mainstream media outlets. So to that to that extent I think your point is really good. To push back on it though, I would say do we really need every perspective in journalism? So as as Americans, we have certain ideals and certain goals as a country. Now, those are fading away as less people know about the history of our country, uh, our founding documents, the way that our country has grown and flourished over the years. I'm not assuming that everyone knows that, and, and I'm not even saying that we can't write things outside of that. So, a great, a great example right now would be America is a democratic country mm-hmm. by nature, and since our founding, we have been a capitalistic country, at least by and large. Right. So does that mean that it's bad for us or we should outlaw or we should censor people who are writing from a socialist point of view? No, I I don't think so. I I don't think we should say, hey, if you don't align with every value we have as Americans, we can't run that. I think that's the point of the free press. But should you have to apologize as a news outlet for carrying at least a bell curve of opinions in your newspaper. Um do, do we want do, do we want to have quotas or mandated standards for how many viewpoints and agendas we need to have on every topic? That that gets into a tricky question. I tend to approach that through the lens of if we want that, and I think and I think it's good to an extent, then we should do that through multiple media outlets as opposed to Having every media outlet try to carry every right. opinion on every topic, right? So some of that is how you go about solving that problem. I tend to think a multiplicity of media outlets is a better way of doing that than trying to get every single perspective right. inside one media outlet itself. No, oh, that's a good point. Um, if I, if I were going to add a, c- a code of integrity to journalists individually, I think the two points I would say are. Are we reporting all the information we know? Are it when the story is written and when it's being updated, are we including all the information that we presently have, whether it's good for the angle that we're writing on or bad for the angle that we're writing on? Are we presenting all the information we know? Secondly, would we use the same method of reporting narrative casting if this story were about a political opponent? Right. And uh, that, that helps us preserve objectivity to the extent that we can in the media. Well, and you're getting at integrity there as well. Right, right, right. Integrity is kind of a, it's kind of a lost word in journalism. But the, the source of it is, would you write the same things about President Obama that you would write about President Trump? And that goes both ways. So it doesn't mean that you can't like one better than the other. But do you treat the stories in the same manner Mm -hmm. when it's somebody that you're opposed to or somebody that you're in favor of? Because one of the things that really gets me in journalism or what pretends to be journalism is the same people who are constantly talking about how much they hate a certain political opponent are then covering that opponent – and trying to pretend like they're presenting objective stories. That
1: just doesn't work. Right. You know, let me—I totally agree with what you just said. Let me pivot just a little bit, take this to another direction. I have a strong opinion, and it may be a Pollyanna kind of an opinion, but follow me with this. First of all, we give the press— encoded in our Constitution very expansive freedoms precisely because they are a crucial watchdog of government. In other words, the freedom of the press, our founding fathers did not like it personally. I mean, they were all excoriated by the press. No one likes that kind of attention. I do not know of a president in my lifetime who hasn't complained about how the press was critical of them. But that's by Mm -hmm. design. We gave them a lot of freedom precisely because they're a watchdog. But for whom are they a watchdog? And so here's a a point I would like to make is I would like to see the press represent the average person in America. For example, getting back to your idea of socialism, let me just take an example from both sides of the aisle. I felt like the press's coverage of Republican politics on health care and being very critical that, for example, it took the Democratic side to get uh, some changes in health care that everybody likes, pre-existing conditions, for example. That was not something Republican politics was very interested in 30 years ago. It is now a central tenet of Republican politics. I felt like that you could fairly criticize Republican leaders for not being concerned about the average person's experience with health care. Now let me flip to the other side. I think when you get the Green New Deal and you get the idea of socialism, I think the media can serve a very good function for the people of America by saying, what would this mean to the average American? Will this cause, as it did in France, gas prices to go up and while the ideology of climate change might be a great thing, and the media might buy into it, what's that going to do to the average person on the street? It seems to me that the media has a role to be the advocate for the average American, whether that's Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, whatever. It seems to me that's an essential function. Yeah, here's what I hear you getting at, is
0: who is the media a check for and who is the media check against. Yes. So I would say constitutionally we have a free press not because the press is the check on government but because the people are the check on government and the people need to know what's going on. Right. So in that sense the, the, the media and the press is a, a tool, they're at least subservient in some way to the public. Right. The rub I think that you're putting your finger on is practically... What the press is used for right now is to shape public opinion more than it is to inform the public so that they can build their opinion. So you have the the major political parties and lobby groups who are influencing the press, and then the press is influencing the American people more than... The press is reporting on what's happening, and then the American people are informing lobby groups, and lobby groups are informing the government. That would be one of my reads, and and, and that may be too idealistic. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's even possible, but I think there's something to be said for what the press is being used for, who's in the driver's seat, and I want the public to be in the driver's seat, and it feels like a lot of the time that the government or lobby groups are in the driver's seat actually
1: checking public opinion. Right. You know, the, uh, probably the, every journalist's ideal is the Nixon situation and the reporting that went on with that, Woodward and Bernstein. That was the height, it seems to me, of the noble calling of journalism. Getting to mm-hmm. the truth and speaking truth to power, to borrow a religious phrase, but basically letting truth take you where it it wants to take you. And I think that is the noble calling of journalism. And I think that's what everybody would like to ascribe to. But it seems that sometimes the media appears to us to have been co-opted by an ideology and no longer serves the American people. The danger of that is, if you think about every totalitarian regime, whether it's the Russians, it's the North Koreans, the first thing they want to, to control is the information flow to their people because they know that if they can control the information, they can drive public opinion. And it seems to me the great temptation in America today is, will our checks and balances keep that from happening? Can a political party, someone seeking power, co-opt the media? Which brings me Mm -hmm. back to your point is, there's probably no single journalistic code of ethics. It may be that we need a, a number of media outlets so that different points of view can be heard if one wants to hear them. Right. That's the the interesting thing about our day and age is two
0: currents in journalism are occurring at the same time. Number one you need as many views as possible, you need clicks So that you can get ad revenue. And so in some ways, the rich are getting richer when it comes to journalism. So you need to be big to be able to do much journalistically. And this is why you see a lot of mid-level companies laying people off, going out of business, Mm -hmm. shutting down. But uh, And that isn't to say that, that organizations like the New York Times or the Washington Post aren't having trouble with the number of subscriptions, but just that the bigger you are, the better things are. Right. At the same time, though, you're seeing a grassroots element in journalism where groups who will tell you what they believe ideologically are actually having a lot more success p- cropping up than mid-sized companies are in continuing doing what they've been doing for sometimes close to a hundred years right so those two those two movements i think capture some of the tension in journalism and and it points to a a bigger question i want to get to kind of a meta-journalistic question that pertains to social media so one of the One of the things that's that's becoming universally true is social media is the easiest way to get your information when it comes to breaking news stories, commentary, things that you read, articles, and and that kind of thing, which is another reason why a lot of mainstream media companies are having trouble with subscription. Mm -hmm. But the discussion that's going on for, for social media companies is... If that's the case, if they are transmitting the lion's share of news, then should we begin to treat them like public utilities, on the one hand, or are they publishing platforms and they should be subject to things like libel and censorship and other regulations like that? So the classification of social media companies actually has a direct relationship on the future of journalism, in my opinion.
1: Right. Yeah, Sillars in his article makes a really good point that Google and Facebook alone, quote, vacuum up tens of billions of dollars annually from advertisers that in previous years would have gone to news companies. And so there are mm-hmm. certain things a, a news company, a newspaper, can print, can't print. There are certain limits to libel and their uh constitutional freedoms, but Google and Facebook and other social media platforms, you put your finger right on it. Are they profit-making entities who should be regulated because they have a monopoly, or are they publishing platforms in which case they are subject to uh, legal redress for the the Mm -hmm. content that's put on them? It seems to me if you're Google and Facebook, you would much, much rather be regulated than you would be responsible for your content. However, I may just be wrong about this because it seems to be that censorship is the direction we're headed. For example, Facebook right. is trying to protect itself by quickly censoring things. That, to me, seems like a dead-end road. You are going yeah. to get accused by one side or the other of being an, uh, an really an unfair arbiter Of information, and sooner or later, that's going to turn against you. But I don't know. How do you read that? Yeah, I totally agree. Let's uh, maybe
0: maybe let's put a point on the conversation this way, and kind of address that topic this way. What do you want to see in the future of journalism and media? And maybe let's kick off with this topic what do we want to see as the future of journalism and media as it pertains to social media companies? I would say one of the things I want to see is a decision to be made one way or the other with the social media companies on their role and responsibility for information. So I think if I were to put down a fundamental principle, I would say I don't believe that objectivity is impossible, but I believe it's more likely... On a group scale I I, I believe that it's more likely A group reaches objectivity And breadth of information Than it is a singular person Reaches objectivity And a breadth of information So I I think um, Having multiple narratives Is good Not reporting on information Depriving the public By selectivity of what you publish Is bad
1: well, it just seems like a, a slippery slope to totalitarianism. I personally, and this right. is my view, is I would rather see those monopoly media companies regulated to allow competitors into the market. I mean, that's what's happened with every other monopoly is to provide a, a voice for competitors rather than have them self-regulate. Self-regulation doesn't seem to have a very good history in our, comp- in our country. No, so
0: self-regulation, I think, with these social media companies is just proven time and time again to be, a, to be impossible. Right. And, and maybe I would disagree with you on that. I, I see, so if the principle that we're applying is a multiplicity of views is good, censorship of material is bad, what I would like to see is the social media platforms be regulated almost intramurally. So for example, I don't think Facebook should be able to delete content that they don't agree with, even if the content itself is horrific and horrendous. Now, do there need to be some rules? Yes, but we have rules for the press. So for example, you can be punished in the press for printing things that that are libel. Right. So you, you cannot actually report things that are untrue. Now, these rules have gotten really loose right. in, in the last couple of decades, but... I think that social media companies should have to let people publish as a public platform, uh, unless they want to declare themselves to be private publishing companies. In which case, that's going to change the nature of social media entirely. Right. So I, I think internal censorship on social media platforms should be outlawed. Now I want to ca- I want to make a caveat because just recently with this uh, this most recent attack in Australia, one of exactly. the things that brought up was why was this why did this stay on facebook so long right and that's a really important point i think there are things that nobody should say and nobody should be able to broadcast the the unfortunate thing is the way that you stop that is you have people who have a certain level of integrity mm-hmm. who don't support that kind of thing with their Attention with their clicks, with their views. The ideal scenario would be Facebook doesn't actually have to police that content. And let's say it's not killing somebody. Let's say it's pornography. Let's say it's harmful viewpoints. Let's say it's bullying. Whatever it is, it should be self-policed by the users inside the platform. We have to come to a point where we actually say no with our attention to things that shouldn't be
1: public. Um, unfortunately I don't know how that's going to go but I think that is the ideal solution. Well and at the risk again of sounding like a Pollyanna that brings us back to our faith. We understand the nature of fallen humanity. We understand the power of the cross and the gospel to transform fallen humanity and once again the gospel is the hope of the world. Fallen humans will always flock to very degenerative kinds of things. But to the extent that God begins to transform us and sanctify us, I think we can be that kind of watchdog on the information that we see. Once again, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we have
0: an individual obligation and responsibility of integrity. I think whether that is the things that we ourselves say Or that is the things that we give our time to and share and click on. And so each one of us, especially as as believers, like you said, the the obligation we have to the truth should lead us to behave a certain way when we interact with with journalism and with media. So I, I think on an individual scale, that's something where we can actually make a difference as believers. On a larger scale... One of the trends that I've noticed, and I think this is actually a positive trend, is the rise of ideologically driven subscription services for journalism and media. So, for example, you you have a group of people. They're honest about where they come from. They don't try to write with... Uh, universal objectivity, but they do the best that they can do, that they're capable of doing with with integrity to the facts from the viewpoint that they write from. So I I think Axios, for example, does a really good job of this. Now, they feign a little bit more objectivity than I think is possible. I agree. But I think they do a pretty responsible job reporting all kinds of stories. They have a, a, a slightly liberal slant on a lot of things, but... They're pretty honest with where they're coming from. And so they report from that standpoint. I think if we have more small, honest ideologically driven outlets that are either subscription or create some way for you to incentivize their publishing outside of just ad dollars, just clickbait, Uh the better the entire sphere of journalism will be. Because at that point, what you're doing is you're paying for the content as opposed to allowing them to sell your attention to other people. So on on a global scale, that would be a suggestion I would make and something that I would like
1: to see. That's a really good point. I I like that too and I subscribe to several media outlets, a uh, couple of which I do not tend to agree with, but because I want a balanced point of view. And but I don't subscribe to anything just to echo my own beliefs back to me. I I don't think that's healthy for us, but it's really nice to be able to hear specific points of view, and I can subscribe. I do have the freedom to subscribe to that. I think that's very useful, and I think your idea is well taken, is maybe that is our practical way forward. I would see that as a more pragmatic approach. You can't change all of humanity. You can't put a universal code of ethics on the journalist. Maybe this is the way forward. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think that the proliferation of
0: Outlets, even small outlets, who are writing from a particular standpoint and who are honest about the standpoint that they're coming from actually achieves the goal of a free press if it's not censored. Right, And it, and it goes back to our individual responsibility. If that's going to happen, we have to make it happen. Right. We have to actually subscribe we have to read i think of there there's a lot of great examples of this but but to do a non news one the athletic the phenomenon of the athletic has been really interesting they've almost completely overtaken espn sports illustrated traditional sports outlets through a subscription service sports news company because they have good journalists yeah so they're they're unashamedly reporting from team perspective. So they're full of beat writers. Uh So you can subscribe to, if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, if you're a uh, Kansas City Chiefs fan, if you're a Thunder fan, whatever, you subscribe to that channel and you're getting people that you know are Thunder homers. Like you know that that's what they're going to write about. But you have that for every team, at least in theory, they're not quite that big yet, but you have that in theory for every team. And so what you have at The Athletic is a group of writers who are all writing favoring their own team and in some way a balanced presentation of the sports world. So that, that's almost a microcosm to me of what could take place in journalism and news
1: media as well. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, that example is a great example of the market solving this problem. Right, right. It's also an example of the principle of subsidiarity
0: that we've talked about on a couple other podcasts Uh applied to something like journalism. How do we bring journalism down to the most local level we can and by having a proliferation of local journalists or of people who are writing on specific issues, experts writing on specific issues from multiple vantage points, we actually produce a better overall journalistic product